is identifying Christ. So I want you to think about that. What was from the beginning? What we heard, so he hears, he sees, he gazes, he touches. And this life was manifested. He says, we've seen. We're testifying. We're proclaiming to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. And that eternal life was revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was giving you and I and those readers that he wrote the letter 2,000 years ago a testimony. And he's summarizing what he's been testifying about. The question you and I need to be asking ourselves is this. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you have a testimony? What was your life like before you came to a saving faith in Christ? How did you live? What were the things you do? What were the things you say? When did you come to that saving faith in Christ? And now, what is different about your life now that you would have this relationship with Christ? How is your life different from when you say that you got saved or before you got saved? Is there any difference there? Or are you still practicing the same exact behaviors you practiced before you came to faith in Christ? And I submit to you that you're probably not saved. 517. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. <clears throat> this is actually slide 17, 18, and 19. If Christian people are uncertain as to the fact that they have eternal life, they are dishonoring God. That's a bold statement. And they are bearing a very poor witness and testimony to the power of salvation. Then let me come to a more practical and personal reason why we should have it. It is that if I am uncertain of my position and my salvation, I shall probably spend most of my time trying to put myself right. Boom. I hope you're hearing this. How can the blind lead the blind? My first business is to get right myself. In my reading of Scripture and in my meditation. Let me say that one more time for those that, you know, don't open up their Bible except maybe Sunday morning. What a tragedy. My first business is to get right myself. In my reading of Scripture and in my meditation, I then shall have to be centering on myself. <clears throat> I am lacking in power and witness and effective testimony. The only way to be strong is to be certain about all of this. Mm -hmm. And the history of the church bears that out statement abundantly. Slide 19. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say this. <clears throat> this is wisdom that's being poured into you right now. It's precious wisdom. Hear what's being taught. Read the stories of the martyrs and the confessors. Read the stories of those men and women who gave their lives for their beliefs, those who went to the stake and died for the truth, those who had hot boiling oil poured all over their bodies, those who were executed upside down on a cross, those who had their heads cut off, those, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, out there in, when they would have uh, 
children and young people out in the middle of the stadium and they would unleash very hungry lions on them? We don't know what suffering is. We don't know. What was the secret? What made them so strong? The answer that these men and women knew in whom they believed. Do you have that kind of faith and strength? They possessed, present tense, eternal life. And the only effect of the death at the stake was to usher them into salvation and bring them face to face with their Lord Jesus Christ. If they had been uncertain about all of this, they would have not faced such a trial. Christ only. So ask yourself these questions. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Who is he to you? What do you think of him? Do you truly believe the scriptures and what they say about Jesus the Christ? If you don't, if you have uncertainty about him, you don't have eternal life. I know that's hard to swallow. I know that's not pretty to preach in church because we want to sing kumbaya all day long. But that's the truth. And you deserve to know the truth. Great, brother. So then this begs the question, how, how then can I trust the scriptures and know that they are from God? I thought about that last week. Again, over 5,600 Greek New Testament manuscripts we still have. One of them dates all the way back to many 100 years after the death of Christ. And as I taught you before, John was living in AD 90. No other document on the face of the globe in history can give you all of what the scriptures give you. And here's the thing. They all say the same thing. No doctrinal variance in any of them. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. I want to take the remaining few minutes we have, and I want to break this down to you. I want you to understand the impact the scripture can have on your life, and how it changes you. All scripture is God-breathed, right? It's inspired by God, as some versions say, profitable for teaching, reproof, correcting, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture, all 66 canonical books, the 39 Old Testament books, the 27 New Testament books, which make up our rule or canon of scripture. You can run a scarlet bloodline thread from Genesis through the entire 66 books to Revelation. You can't do that with extra biblical works. It doesn't work. That's why we have these 66 canonical books of the scriptures. You can trust them. All of them. That word for scriptures, the word graphe. The same word John used in verse 13 where it says these things were written. These things were graphe. All scripture, all graphe is inspired by God. That basically means that word graphe means a document of sacred writings. <clears throat> all the scripture is God's inerrant, inspired, revealed word to us. And we're going to back that up in a few minutes. Notice what the text says. It's all inspired by God. That's the word theopneustos. Literally means 
literally theopneustos basically means literally breathed out by God. Church, God breathed out of his mouth what he wanted said into the heart and mind of the human writers. He literally breathed it out. He breathed it out. He theopneustos. He breathed out what he wanted said into the heart and mind of the human writers that he chose. The text was not inspired by man. It was inspired by God himself. That's what the text says. Jeremiah, slide 22, 1-9. Back in the Old Testament. Then the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, stretched out his hand. Doesn't say an angel. says Yahweh stretched out his hand. The Lord stretched out his hand, touched my mouth. The Lord said to him, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Read your Bible. Study it. Digest it. Then you have God's word put in your mouth. It's important for us to understand that these scriptures, church, are from God. These scriptures are about God and how God has revealed himself to sinful fallen men and women like you and I. Throughout all of the scriptures, God, from Genesis to Revelation, is revealing his truth. He's revealing his character. He's revealing his divine plan as how he's going to redeem mankind from the Old Testament all the way through. God's word is revealed to all of mankind on earth. What are you doing with it? You don't need to be reading Vogue magazine when you've got your Bible right there. How about what Peter teaches? 523, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. What does Peter say? Know this, gnosis, know this first of all, that no prophecy, no portion of the scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No portion of it. For no prophecy, no portion of this Bible was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Church, it's important for us to understand that these scriptures are from God. He said it's a matter of one's own interpretation. That means that man, that's the Greek word genome, that word of matter. It's, a, it's not a matter of one's own interpretation. Basically, what he's saying, these didn't come into being or originate from man's mind. Man did not cause these words to be. He says he follows that up with of one's own interpretation. That, that speaks of a source rather uh, than an understanding. What does Peter want you and I to understand here this morning? Church, Peter wants us to understand that no part of your Bible originated or came into a being was created by man through man's thoughts or will. Man did not create the scriptures. Man is not the author of scripture. Man is not the origin of Scripture. Don't believe the lie. <clears throat> he says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Peter's telling you how, how these human writers received. The Bible says that he moved on them. The Holy Spirit moved on them. 
This word moot churches in the Greek is what we call a present active participle. And, and basically, think of it. If, if I say bike, you think of a bike. If I say biking, you think of an action, right? Kind of like an adverb or a verb. So a participle is kind of like putting an ing. It's something that's continually going on, right? So there's this continuing going on in God the Holy Spirit breathing out what he wanted them to inscripturate for you and I. He moves on us. 524, John MacArthur puts it this way. MacArthur says, for Peter, it was as if the writers of Scripture raised their spiritual sails and allowed the Holy Spirit to fill them with his powerful breath of revelation as they penned his divine words. Church, hear me this morning. The men that God chose are the writing instruments. They only wrote what God wanted said, not what they wanted said, what God wanted said. God used their personalities. He used their backgrounds. He used their vocabularies. He used their style of writing to bring forth what he wanted said. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And here's the word profitable for teaching. So when we think about the idea of something that's profitable for teaching, uh, the idea of profitable here in the Greek has the idea of something useful, something productive, something beneficial. See, Paul wants you and I to understand that these scriptures are fully capable of meeting the spiritual needs of God's people. You don't need stuff outside of God. <clears throat> Paul wants you, and this is we're back in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 15, or 16 and 17, profitable, beneficial, useful, capable of meeting all of our spiritual needs. Notice how he unpacks this. So he says, profitable for teaching, the didaskaleo. The idea here seems to be of divine instruction that is given to believers from God's word. When you're reading God's word, you're getting divine instruction. It's not like you're reading a, a learn how to drive car manual. You're getting divine instruction. So how do we, does scripture authenticate scripture, validate scripture? Yeah, slide 25. How about Romans 15, 4? Paul here is writing in 2 Timothy, but Paul also wrote to the church in Rome in Romans 15, 4. Paul says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, literally our learning, so that the perseverance, it doesn't say so, or perseverance just doesn't mean, well, I have the TV on here, or I have my Bible over here. Which one's going to persevere? Which one's going to win? Am I going to be watching TV for 17 hours a night, or am I going to spend any time in the Word of God? Well, I'm messing it out. Perseverance means that uh, instead of looking, see, we always look for no pain and we always look for comfort. But think about the blessing and the joy when God speaks to you through his word and something happens in here that resonates in your heart and your mind. It's so exciting. No earthly thing can give you that kind of joy and excitement to know when you're in the word of God Veiling and revealing something to you, and you're like, wow, wow. Perseverance and encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. If you're discouraged, 
let God purge you through his word. Why not let the very God that missed you in your mommy's womb speak to you? You don't need Dean Shilpost. You don't need a marriage with Jack Talent, American Idol, and all that other stuff. Your encouragement is going to come from the very one that missed you in your mother's womb. Why did she get the droppings and leftovers in the week of nothing at all? Why? It should be clear to all of us by now <clears throat> that when you and I, we have a responsibility to be studying the scriptures. We should be meditating on them. And we should be taking what is taught in them and putting what's being taught into our everyday life so that we can look different from the world, so they can see the hope that's in us. Church, I, I, I believe that God does, in fact, guide his people to do what brings pleasure to him, but he does it through his word. And God, the Holy Spirit, and the word never, ever, ever, ever work independently from each other. God has given us his word, the scriptures for learning. The Bible gives us instruction on how to live our lives today. Through it, listen, you'll be surprised. Through it that we develop skills, knowledge, and insights. I've said this a million times, and I'm not going to get tired of saying it. If you read just one chapter of Proverbs each day, it's 31 chapters, just one chapter of Proverbs each day, at the end of one year, you will have read every chapter 12 times. I'm not asking you to camp out 16 hours a day uh, feeding on the nectar of the Word of God, but think about it. When you wake up in the morning, it gets, instead of just your coffee and donuts, what would it be like to wake up in the morning, open up the scriptures, and wake up with Jesus? Think about that. How awesome that would be. And then we come to the word reproof. Don't worry, I'm almost done. What does it mean to reproof? Proper teaching, for rebuking or reproofing. That word of reproof has the idea is this. To rebuke or reproof is to convict a person of misbehavior or false doctrine. The, the idea here is the idea of forcing back. See, church, hear me this morning. The truth of God's word exposes falsehood and sin and ungodly behavior. What does this mean? If you're truly born again, if you're truly a follower of Christ, this has to be preached. Fluffy churches don't want to preach what I'm about to teach you here. We're not a fluffy church. I'm going to tell you what the word says. If you're truly born again, God will reprimand, discipline you and I when we turn away from him. If we are daily, each day, applying the word of God to our life, here's the thing that's going to happen for you. You're going to develop the discernment to know when you're getting off track. You're going to develop the discernment to know when you're getting off track. The Word of God has the idea of forcing back, the idea of rebuke. It warns us when we start heading in the wrong direction. God forces, God's Word forces you and I back to face the truth about ourselves. I, I get so sick when I hear this, uh, of this meditation to, to you know, meditate, mean, get to know yourself better. You want to get to know yourself better? Open up your Bible. Preach, you don't need to be chanting mantras and smelling oils and you know doing all this stuff and clapping symbols together and just meditating stuff like that. 
All you need is the word of God. You don't need second-rate systems to give you what only the living God can give you. Your discernment, your wisdom to know yourself inside and out better is going to happen when you dig into the scriptures, dig into the word of God. I know some of my psychology friends are going to hate me for saying that, but that's the truth. 526. Let me finish up here. I love this scripture. Let me slowly read this to you. Listen to it when it's being read. For the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is able to judge the intentions of the heart, the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the logos, my, and the intentions of your heart. There's no creature on earth hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Soak that in for a minute. Hebrews 12, and Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, think about that. Look at that word open, open and laid bare. You may ask yourself, well, Pastor Jack, what's so big about that word open? Well, God doesn't put any words in the Bible by accident, first of all. The word open there is Greek word pakarizo. What's so important about it? Well, you understand that oh, this is a word that had two actual different uses back in Paul's day when this was being penned. Now, our etymology of the word is a little different today, but I'm not interested in our etymology of the word and how it is today. I'm more interested in what, what did Paul mean when Paul said that? All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with which we have to do. Well, this word open first was that of a wrestler. <clears throat> this wrestler would take the opponent by the throat. In this position, both fighters were literally face to face. And the Greeks of that day would understand that word open with pakalizo. Second use <clears throat> of the word was actually used in a trial or a legal proceeding. And I taught this probably a year or two ago. You see, open and laid bare, the idea of open here in a court of law back in that day, the Roman guards would put a dagger right here, literally, if you're looking at me. Very sharp, very sharp dagger. And it would literally be tied to the neck of the accuser. A very sharp pointer. You see, this was done so the person that was in the courtroom facing the trial could not bow his head down. He couldn't look away from the court. He had to come face to face with the judge, with the court, right here. Both of these meanings have this idea of a face-to-face -face situation. So how do we draw this out of the text? How do we, we, we've gone down, we've dug deep, the exegete that we're drawing out of the text because we want the text to tell us what it means. Think about it. Very important. When a person comes under the watchful scrutiny of the Word of God, that person will unavoidably come face to face with the perfect truth about God and himself. When you're in the scriptures, you're face to face with the scriptures, literally, you are face to face with the perfect truth about what God has to say to you about himself. 
and then collecting. The idea of collecting here, up in the Thorstis, has the idea of, you know, when we looked at, you know, collecting means making and so forth. So collecting here has the idea sort of, of installing something to its proper condition. So maybe God has the power to restore you and I to our, our, our proper conclusion. In, in secular Greek, back then, 2,000 years ago, this word has the idea of setting an object that's back upright that has fallen. Or, or, or it has the idea of helping somebody back on their feet who fell down. What does correction do? Why do we need it? Because we're sinners. And we do bad things because we're sinners. So we need correction. So the word of God has the idea of, of changing something from being wrong to being upright again. It, it, it changes that. It, it makes you right conform to the proper standard. God doesn't just scold us when we sin. He also offers us correction so that we don't make that same mistake over and over and over and over again. He, he puts our lives back on the right course. God's word puts us back on the right path, guiding each of us towards a healthier, more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you want that? And then I'm going to, I'll have to stop the sermon. So, all scripture is given by inspiration of God's proper doctrine, reproofing, correcting, and instructing, instructing us and training us in righteousness. Training. Sakeadia. The idea, I, I love this, this, this training relationship. Church, that this word has the idea of tutoring. Giving instruction, building up. You ever notice sometimes kids need extra help in a subject? So what do the parents try to do? They try to find somebody to tutor them, to help them, so they can do well. So you see, God's word guides us, and it gives us the help and the structure we need to prepare us to live a life that is pleasing to God. What does it do? It trains us, tutors us, so that we can live a life. It glorifies God and conforms to his standards so that you and I may be adequate or equipped for every good work. Capable and sufficient of every good work or whatever God's called you to do. Let me ask you this as I close this morning. What's God calling you to do? You listening by Facebook, you, some of you churches around the world that are tuning in right now, what is God calling you to do? Do you have an intimate, ongoing, personal relationship with Christ? If you were to drop dead today, get hit by a car, choke, whatever, heart attack, if today was your last day on earth, your last day, what would you be doing differently than you're doing today or now or yesterday? Would you be doing something different today than yesterday if you knew today was your last day on earth? What would be different would there be some TV shows you wouldn't be watching anymore? Would there be places that you shouldn't be going anymore? Maybe laying with somebody that you're not married to that you wouldn't be laying with anymore? Because all of a sudden, oh, it's my last day. Better try to clean things up. Doesn't work that way, church. Doesn't work that way. You have 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 read to you, broken down to you. What are you going to do with the word of God? Are you going to allow it to change your life? 
that we want to keep living the way you live according to seeing God's seed. Now, I know that that doesn't sound very popular and very helpful, but it's the truth. God talks about relationships. God talks about, you know, a man respecting a woman so much that she's worth the weight instead of laying with her, treating her like a used car. She's worth the weight. That's a real man. Are you that kind of man? Or curling up profanity seven days a week like a junkyard dog. When God says in his word, don't let corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only what is necessary for education, that it may impart grace to the hearer. How's your talk? God owns your talk. Are you discrediting them every time you open your mouth? Are you lying? Are you taking things that don't belong to you? I mean, think about it. Are there behaviors in your life that God says, thou shalt not that you need to change? Here's the thing. You can hate me all you want. Someday you're going to drop dead. And it's going to be too late because it's the one that's appointed once for a person to die and then the judgment. So you understand something here. There's no second chance. Sin generates consequences. God's given you and I an instruction manual to live in such a way that he gets the glory, honor, and praise. Think about it. Does, does, do the things in your life just revolve around your comfort and pleasure? Or do you want to be stretched out of your comfort zone and say, Lord, how can you use me today to glorify and honor you? As simple as handing out a gospel tract or sharing your testimony or live in such a way that when your friends that are living the wrong way see you, you just become a walking, living translation, container, and testimony of Christ has changed your life. Amen? Bow our heads. Father, we want to thank you this morning for your word, because your word gives life. We want to thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us here without an instruction manual on how to live and glorify you. And Lord, I pray for people that are here this morning,